This episode is brought to you in collaboration with Go With Yamo. Go With Yamo is an art exhibition app which helps you to find the exhibitions, art fairs and art events happening all around you. The app displays exhibitions based on your location, so the one closest to you will be at the top of the list, but if you're planning a trip, you can of course change your location to a different city. What makes the app really fun is that whenever you are at an exhibition, you can check in and earn points, which can then be used to redeem prizes from the in-app store, such as prints, exhibition tickets, books and more. Go with Yamo also create custom virtual exhibitions for galleries and artists. You can find all of these on their website along with some great blog content including artist interviews, exhibition recommendations, quizzes and reviews. The app is free to download from the App Store and the Google Play Store so make sure you check it out and visit their website www.gowithyamo.com. That's www.g-o-w-i-t-h-y-a-m-o.com. <gasps> oh, who's this? This is my life and soul, but she's going to be disruptive. <laughs> Oh my god! Who is this dog, and where did they come from? She's called B. Um, we in. mine just came. Oh, they could be so love each other. Where is he? I can't see him. Oh, hello. <laughs> Have you enjoyed it being a new dog owner? Oh my god, yeah. I, I've, I've, I was talking to my brother about this yesterday and his boyfriend. I've been obsessed with dogs my whole life. Like we've always had dogs. I've always been too attached. <laughs> It's like been the one that's like training them and all that kind of stuff or trying to so you've been you've been a diehard dog fan I mean I wasn't really but I like I I don't know what came over me I was just I got caught up in the whole frenzy and now I'm like completely obsessed with them um so what have you been up to this week since we last chatted yeah I know it's like long time no speak um honestly just like working and stuff I had the whole weekend off um and that was really chilled um playing with the dogs um (laughs) um honestly not much I'm still not going out or anything really at all um even though the restrictions have all been stopped and stuff um like I go to the shop and I buy food and that's pretty much it (laughs) that's very boring what about you well I did actually go out for the first time this weekend um though I in Hastings they have a load of parties on the pier and it was queer on the pier this weekend so there were a whole load of like drag performers, drag kings, drag queens, some DJs and um, some of the RuPaul Drag Race UK girls as well. Awesome. So, you know, I had to get my fangirl on and scream for Tace and Aurora and Ellie Diamond and all these amazing drag queens. So that was very fun, but um, it was weird. It was really mm-hmm. weird. I can't deny that it wasn't strange, kind of um, like there were, there were no like, you know social distancing happening there was no masks but mm. I'm hoping that the power of the, the sea wind will have just whipped anything away and just queer power <laughs> just show queer, queer power fighting the virus <laughs> oh that's so good I, I think that's really nice I, I love Hastings any event in Hastings is just cool, mm-hmm. Very cool. good vibe I think in, gen- well, in general <laughs> <laughs> Um, great. So today we have got 
um, Helen Downey, um, aka the unskilled worker, chatting with us today. So you obviously, did you find her especially for this uh, auction or did you know her prior? No, so Helen is one of those amazing well, she's just, she's amazing is how I would describe Helen. So I approached Helen really early on in my She Curates platform. And it was one of those, you're really intimidated. They've done so much. They've accomplished so much. They're so incredible painting. Da, da, da. And they've got this huge, you know, social media cult following. Incredible. And Helen is the most down to earth. We chat on the phone. If I need advice for something in the art world, I'll message Helen. I'll give Helen a call. And like we have these amazing chats and I've just um, been obsessed with her work for so long. I'm hoping to be doing some stuff with her in the future that I actually still need to ask her about. Um, and yeah, and then the minute, um, obviously I was offered to do art on a postcard. I was just like, obviously I'm going to invite Helen. I think she was the first one to do the work, say yes, send them back, everything. So I'm absolutely delighted. Mm. I really enjoyed looking through these um, th just for the research for this podcast, just taking a look through some of her works because they're like totally on this intersection between like sweet and innocent and like quite dark and twisted and kind of fantastical, um, which has been really fun to sort of sit in that space with her for that time. So yes, yeah, so she is obviously super interesting and I can't wait to chat with her um, and has kindly donated these two artworks to us um, for the auction. How are you feeling about the auction? Are you looking forward to it? I'm so looking forward to it. every day when like Gemma messages me and a new artwork has come in or, you know, a new artist signed on because I'm still getting a few artists um, coming on board. It's just it's been an absolute delight and I'm really, really excited. And everyone seems in such a support of what Art and a Postcard is doing and where the money's going. Because I think a lot of people say like, oh, what, what's Hepatitis C? Mm -hmm. um, so I don't know if you wanted to talk us through that a little bit. Yeah, definitely. So the Hepatitis C Trust is the first charity in 30 years to have completed its mission. And then so with the new drugs becoming available in the UK extremely widely, now it's just the process of we need to target the people who have Hepatitis C who might not know, i.e. through blood transfusions or, um, or from tattoos abroad or from, you know, uh, drug uh, use, whatever it might be, um, and target those people so that we can get them tested. And once they're tested, we can get them treated if it, if it comes back positive. Because what the CEO, Rachel, always says, which I always think is like so um, just powerful, really, is that nobody needs to die from, it's such a waste for anybody to die from this virus and people still do die from it. So it's up to us really at the Hepatitis C Trust to just get out there, find the people through like, you know, it's, um, there's a high percentage rate in uh, prisons. So like just targeting those people that have been vulnerable to, you know, drug use or whatever it might be and making sure that they get tested, get treated and um, ultimately, you know, save their own lives. So that is what all of these cards, 100% of the proceeds obviously are going to this cause. Um, and it's such a huge operation that, you know, you can imagine if one, if one person doesn't get seen in that prison, it could like the kind of domino effect. So it's really imperative that we find everybody with it and we get them all treated. So yeah, 
that is the hepatitis C trust in a nutshell. I mean, there's so much other stuff that they do in terms of awareness raising, for instance. I feel like, you know, with art on a postcard, it's not just the, the money that we raise. It's also, you know, getting the word out there and kind of getting people to care about hepatitis C um, so that it stops killing people. Um, did you know about the hepatitis C trust before? Well, no, do you know, it's interesting you say about obviously raising awareness, so you sort of hear about it, but I didn't know anything about it really until I think I um, actually auctioned, um, auctioned, bought a work from one of the auctions, and then mm -hmm. I started looking into it, and it is, um, yeah, it's incredibly powerful what you do, and, and like, like you say, the domino effect that we've seen in all of our lives very much so, um, yeah, proves how important it is to get every single person. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And I think it's like one of those things that Charles was, always, Charles was the founder and CEO. It's now, Rachel is now the CEO. Um, but what Charles would always say is that hepatitis C is extremely sort of unglamorous as a, as a virus. It's not something that you can sort of sugarcoat. Um, put and, you know, and I actually, to be blunt about it, I tell you why it is, is because there is so much stigma around, you know, drug addiction in general. And because such a large portion of people with hepatitis C have contracted it via, you know, their drug addictions, um, there is a real stigma around it. And that's like, that's our biggest, and has always been one of our biggest challenges is getting people to not go, oh, that's a junkies disease or whatever, and actually have compassion for people. Um, who've contracted it in whatever way and like you know don't deserve to die regardless of you know how they've found themselves in their in their lives um and I do think it has got better just as our understanding of addiction has, has become better as well and that we now kind of don't just view it as you made a choice like you know you're a despicable human being whatever it's kind of having compassion for people to and realizing that they do have the potential to turn their lives around oh my god i would really urge actually if the listeners haven't already done it to go and look at um the film i made with jane and julia who are the women's prison team at the hepatitis c trust and they are two of the most incredible women so they met each other in prison um both of them had been like you know fallen you know off the beaten path and found themselves in some trouble so they both met in prison and as they were in prison they both got tested and treated for hepatitis c and they said that that was really the first time they did something for themselves to get themselves healthy and so then when they came out they contacted the hepatitis c trust they did a bit of work for us and they met each other again and said hey we have this experience of being in prison are we want to help other women try to do this exact same thing for themselves and turn their lives around and so they've done exactly that they've gone into prisons they hold peer support groups for you know prisoners who who sometimes some of them would have absolutely nothing else in their lives other than this group where they come and they have biscuits and they talk about you know whatever's been going on in their lives and they get themselves treated in a safe kind of open comfortable environment that doesn't make them feel dirty anymore and some of their stories are just so moving and you're just like oh my god it, it always affirms for me why I work with art on a postcard whenever I speak to Jane or Julia that's incredible thank you for sharing that um great so Helen is joining the call now I'll let oh where is she it's just connecting I, I think I'm getting some oh there you are there we go it looks amazing I was about to swear then. it looks amazing where you are <laughs> Oh, it's lovely. So this is, you're in Italy, you mentioned. 
Yeah, I'm in Italy. I'm in a place called Orvieto, or just outside of Orvieto. Um, it's where I come. I've come here for about the last 14 or 15 years. It's where I began painting. So um, we come for around three months. And yeah, I continue to work here in a studio upstairs. Brilliant. It's a lovely place to work. Yeah. Uh, do you find yourself, does your painting change depending on the environment you're in? So like in the UK, you're making different work to out there. Yes, um, especially in the last two years. Um, I get here and I usually just want to paint boys. You know, I have two kind of, I don't know if they're different styles, really. I think they, they look like they're the same artist. Um, but usually I get here and I just have an urge to paint boys, which doesn't very often happen in London. I'm more into making uh, big work there and work that takes a long time. And I used to be that way here, but for some reason, the last two years, um, I'm very instinctive. I can't force anything. I can't, um, I'm not very disciplined without a very big, creative urge to do to almost like an explosion in my head you know that's how my paintings are made really it's like a pressure that builds up and then it just has to come out well here I don't find that the pressure is the same and generally I paint boys uh they come from a different place I have to feel maybe Italy makes me feel quite boyish although I always think Italy's got a feminine energy maybe I'm just quite um I'm kicking against that really but <laughs> the boys come out when I feel boyish I can't um they're almost like they're almost like self-portraits in a way I think very interesting I was gonna ask you because obviously looking at your work the thing that sort of is most arresting to begin with for me is this sort of I was just say, saying to Molly actually this sort of the place that they sit between a sort of naive, fantastical, um, kind of dreamlike quality, but also there is something quite sort of occasionally sinister creeping into the paintings. And I really enjoy being in that space. And I was going to ask you, where do you draw generally that, that, those fantastical elements from? Are they from dreams? Are they from research? How do they seep into the work? They come from, I, I suppose they, I suppose they're me in a way. Like I always think an artist's work is just them in material form or, or aside to them, that's material form. And I suppose I'm exploring, <clears throat> like everything happens all at the same time. You can be happy yet there can be, always be a dark element to life. Well, I find um, that we, often don't want to acknowledge or we fight against or we find ways to not think about that. Um, but I, I, I think if, if you, like I think, I think a few things, I feel that at the center of most humans is a sadness, quite a profound sadness, you know, that and knowing that everything will end. How can it not be sad when you know that it's all coming, you know, your life is coming to an end. So, so there's certain elements that are threaded through the work that may appear to be dark, but it's just kind of factual, like there's death threaded through the work. But I think about death a lot because I think it's like the, 
death is like the arrow, you know, the bow of life, like that. It, it, it's everything is a response to it, really. Even if we don't aren't aware of it, we're we're under pressure. We're, we're we've got a limited time. So I think that's threaded through the work. Um, but then lots of other things, you know, the time I spend in Italy, I walk around the Uffizi and the Barberini, the Borghese, and I think that work, you know, early Renaissance and medieval paintings kind of go in. I think they were much more into exploring that. People were much more accepting of death in those times because it was all around. And I think with, with COVID, we've probably got a little bit of that sense. I think that's, uh, uh, you know, caused the chaos in people's minds is the break, the breakthrough of the denial of life comes to an end. But I don't mean to sound dark and depressing. I actually think it's what makes life act, act, absolutely spectacular. But the, also the, the other element of my work is that the emotion to me is, is rooted in reality. So although there, I won't say the word fantasy because I don't like it, um, because that suggests that it's not real. And the, the places are, while I'm painting them, it's very real to me. It's always a disappointment when I take it off the wall and it's just, you know, like it just becomes a sheet of paper with a load of paint on it. That's the, that's what it is. It's an object, which to me is kind of a never ending disappointment. So on to the next one. Um, but I think that's what all artists do. They're trying to make something, attempting to be some kind of mini God. <laughs> when you're when you're in your studio and you're working on one of these sort of like portals to these new worlds do you work on one at a time or do you have various portals all over the walls no I work on one of the one at a time and I always mean because I look on Instagram and there's artists with all of these works around them in their studio and I kind of think yeah that's what grown-up artists do they have lots going on at the same time and I I try to do that but I get so involved with one um, that I can't leave it. So it's, yeah, it doesn't work for me the other way. Maybe it will do one day and I'm kind of hoping it does. But for now, it doesn't seem to. Yeah, it's always one at a time in a kind of big burst of energy really. And not, I, I don't keep sketchbooks either because uh, that would feel like I was copying myself. So if, it, if the sketch in a sketchbook looked really, you know, just as I wanted it, um, I'd be kind of disappointed that it that it couldn't be made bigger or I don't know. Yeah, so I just I, I just think it all happens on one one sheet. Mm. That's actually good. Not so much with the boys though, because the boys can take it can be made over a week. They're there within a day, but then sorry, that's not me crying. That's my dog. They're there within a day, but they take a different kind of sensitivity really. So I need to wake up with new eyes over a few mornings to see what, what they look like, you know, to see how, how it feels. Yeah, that's really, really fascinating. You mentioned as well, using Instagram and taking a look at the way that other artists work and things like that. And you've obviously got this huge Instagram um, platform. You're followed by hundreds of thousands of people. I was wondering, how do you find sort of navigating that 
versus you know the act of being in the studio and cre creating and how do you how do you use the tool within your practice I don't consciously use it you know I feel I feel Instagram is very tricky I think it's I have a real dual um relationship with it so I'm really grateful that I've found artists dead and alive which who I absolutely love um that have somehow kind of seeped into my own work I, I, I think because whatever you look at I think artists have to be careful of what they look at because we're a bit sponge-like. You know, what goes in can come out and that, that, that thing that's gone in might not necessarily be something that's worthwhile. Uh, so I think I have to be really careful of what I look at. I have to be careful about how much time I spend with it. I'm really aware that it is, has been designed to bypass all rational thinking of the human brain and hit the part of the brain that's kind of ancient and old um, the addiction center really uh, but I think that's a problem almost everybody has with Instagram from 15 year old girls to my mum you know um, so I have to be very careful I also have to be careful of the like system I try not to let it affect me or make it, what it cannot do is inform anything that I want to make. I cannot make to please Instagram or to um, create content because it's a greedy monster. It's got, its mouth is wide open 24 hours a day wanting you to shove content into it. And it rewards you for doing that. Um, I find it sinister. And I do speak out about it in various places and I feel paranoid when I do because I'm also aware that it's been an incredible platform for me. But over the last four years, the change has been something that has made it quite unpleasant, I feel. Yeah, I appreciate that. It's, it, I, I understand the dual relationship that you have. I do feel that I know you obviously have a bigger platform than most people have. But even, you know, for me down here with the few followers I have, I also feel that as well. I think it's, you know, ubiquitous amongst Instagram users. Um, but I also did want to then ask on a different note, if that's some, if you if you don't allow those things to inform the work, what things... Yeah. What things and parts of life do you are you really open to informing the work? Where do you find yourself being like a kind of a magpie of, of visual stimulus? I think I think really it's it's some of the work is is just trying to work out how I feel. You know, the other thing that you mentioned about the darkness is that there's quite a lot of anger threaded through the work, but I don't think that's I don't think that's evident to people, and it doesn't matter that it's not. You know, it's evident at the time when I'm making it. Um, I can feel quite angry at the way that I see women still in 2000 and what are we in 21, having their bodies molded into some kind of um, unrealistic form. You know, so I'm, I mean, I think since Gucci, and this was probably a kickback against painting people with clothes on, I, I prefer to paint women naked. Because um, I feel strongly that we are not being represented in our, in a full, in our full form, really. You know, it's, um, I find it tragic. Uh, not, it's not even tragic, I find it unbelievable find it unbelievable I went on to my sometimes I have lots of young friends 
um, a lot of them are on Tinder, and I look at Tinder with one of my boy young boyfriends, um, and I'm just shocked at the pressure on women, young women, of, of to look a certain way. It's, it's shocking. So that will be woven through the work. But then mixed with Im images, I love the work of um, Aya Takano. I think her work has that kind of very light, but there's something dark that runs through it. And then Charles Birchfield, who was a watercolorist, whose work I absolutely adore. So I'm drawn to anything with a kind of, as I see it anyway, a kind of majesty of life. The, you know, we, we, we tend to kind of miss the magic by looking for magic. If, you know, in the act of us looking for magic, we miss the magic that's everywhere. And an artist like Charles Birchfield just painted that magic. It's a, it's a particular type of realism to me. So that's what I'm talking and, and an artist like Billy Childish too. And then Alice Neal. But it doesn't seem to inform my work. But maybe in some way. I don't know. Sometimes, sometimes I think artists are expected to know where, you know, all of our, where we're inspired. And we don't always. Childhood a lot as, as well. And I think uh, certain books. Like the first book that I read as an adult was the picture of Dorian Gray by Oscar Wilde. And it never left, actually. I can see that a lot in my work. You know, it's like my the characters in my work are kind of ageless. They kind of, um, you know, the human brain doesn't really uh, age us past 24. So when you look in the mirror and you see, you know, when I look at, in the mirror, I see my 56-year-old self staring back. But my human brain is thinking that I still look it just can't age me. So it's forever a shock. <laughs> I think I'm painting what we are on the inside rather than you know, the form we take on the inside rather than the outside. So some of my characters may look 24 or even younger, but they're not really. I love that. It's almost like the soul of a person rather than the yeah outward appearance. Yeah, just the, not some might say the soul, but more the shape of the inside. Yeah. Yeah. You know. I like that. Um, and then I think a lot of the reoccurring things like red shoes are from childhood, just an endless fascination with that, with red shoes. And there's no other, there's no other colour shoe that's been so historically important or had so many stories written about it or Pope wears them and, the, and the, the, yet women that were kind of seen of as having a dubious nature wore them. You know, they're, they're kind of, I like things that have different symbolic meanings depending on who's looking. The same with... Uh, shaved boys' heads. There's never been a haircut that has so many different meanings from, you know, real hatred and anger, um, the far right movement, to <clears throat> spiritually enlightened or, you know, very, very sad situations in, you know, in the Second World War. So that, that interests me how. Um, something can take on different meanings. Yeah. Do you do you very much use a kind of symbolism within your own work? Then, in terms of you know, the, like you mentioned, the red shoe as being it, it means something bigger than it than the object itself. Do you use a f um, like a form of symbolism, or, or do you make up your own symbols as you go? Or well, I kind of make up my own symbols as I go, and then look at the meaning afterwards, uh, and and then they fade out. Like for a time, I would put 
apple cores into the work and it was for for a few reasons when I was in my 30s I used to eat apples all day every day and everywhere I went was a trail of apple cores so I put those into the work they became it became for a while a, a kind of signature but then also they they meant to me that just that thirst for knowledge and eating it all and then wanting and wanting more you know but knowledge doesn't necessarily mean wisdom um that's something different I think so uh, there's also another another thing that goes into almost every painting is a blue ring that I've worn since I was very young. Just another way of leaving my mark, I guess. Um, I'm putting myself in the place. Usually the ring is lost somewhere, like in in a ceremony. Uh, it's, it's lost under the sea. You know, so it's usually almost like a, a way of saying, I, I was there, I walked through this place and I left something there. Yeah, I suppose when you mentioned about, you know, artists kind of playing God at times when they're when they're creating these worlds and also that mention, you know, you mentioned the idea of this constant um, subconscious or conscious knowing that death is always on the horizon. It's almost by creating artworks and artifacts of and putting yourself within them. It's a kind of way of existing eternally as well. I suppose so, although I work on paper and I don't expect them to survive for ever so I'm not really interested in that because I, I just think hu hu humans have a difficult time of, of accepting impermanence so we build systems and um, objects and try and leave our mark here you know and sometimes um, it would be better if we didn't <laughs> <laughs> Um, although I do enjoy things that have been built in that spirit. I mean, walking around Florence and Rome and parts of London, that they're, you know, they're built by people that, that wanted that permanence. So that spirit does make beautiful things. Yeah. So um, one of the questions that uh, seems sort of like the, the first one that came to my mind when I was looking into your work, just because it was like the initial introduction to it, before yeah. you know you meet the artwork, it is the that you go by the moniker the unskilled worker where does that come from when did you start going by it oh well um i i've always liked the word i'd liked the word for years before i'd opened the instagram account and um at the time i used to use it as passwords for things i, I don't anymore but um and then i tried to convince my son's friend to use it as his dj name and he said it was absolutely rubbish I thought, I thought this boy doesn't know what he's talking about. This is all in the years before I began painting. But, you know, my Instagram account was opened, I think, really at the beginning of Instagram. And I just opened it as unskilled worker. And I didn't start using it until quite a, few, a number of years later. I didn't really know how it worked. Um, and when I opened it and when I started posting my paintings, I just thought, oh, I'll keep that name, Unskilled Worker. I like the way it writes. I like the way it sounds. I like what it means, those three things. Um, sometimes I think, like some of my recent work, I've signed Helen Downey, but I can sign what I like, I guess. So I'm not ready to give Unskilled Worker up. I was thinking about this yesterday, actually. It really has become a kind of uh, like an alter ego, like having a separate personality. But Helen Downey and Unskilled Worker are quite different, I think. Like a drag alter ego. <laughs> yeah, Unskilled Worker is more boyish in some ways. 
because it's quite a, the other thing I liked about it was that it was gentler. And when I first began painting, it blew up so quick, you know, because it was the early days of Instagram. And I don't think there was a lot to look at, really, other than cups of coffee and, and plates of food. And people get bored of that after a while. So people started looking at my paintings. And I, what I really enjoyed was that nobody had a clue as to how old I was and what gender I was. And sometimes I wish I'd stayed that way. Uh, only because it would be interesting to see. Like most people in the early days thought I was a 24-year-old boy, which for a middle-aged woman was kind of really, I don't know, I just really liked it. I never put them right. I never said, no, I'm not. Did you ever do like a sort of big reveal about who you are on Instagram or did it kind of just come out with press and um, pieces that you've been involved in? It came out with press. Uh, I can't remember if the New York Times, I think the New York Times outed me but they didn't out my face. So they came and photographed me and I just held a painting up. Mm -hmm. um, it's a strange thing, isn't it? I always feel that my artwork is the best of me, really, but people want to know a lot about the person that makes it. But it's all there in the painting. So did, did you find that reception to your work changed after that, after people stopped seeing you as like a young boy? Um, did you find people started reading different things into your work? Because as a classic, obviously, if you're a woman artist, people start reading very sort of feminine qualities into works. Maybe, but I think what they were more impressed with was how old I was, <laughs> which was hilarious. It was as if after the age of 28, life just, I don't know, we were meant to dig a hole and put ourselves in it and not come back up. I just don't know what, you know, we're so youth obsessed, aren't we? So when they found out that I was like, uh, 49, 50 at that point. I think I was about 50 when the New York Times article came out. I just, it was bizarre. And the New York Times called me a late bloomer, which is like being a loaf of bread or something. I mean, it was that was the strangest. I hadn't really thought about my age. I mean, when you begin something, you don't think, oh, I'm not going to do this, I'm too old. You just want to do something and you think, I'm going to do it. Because on the inside, you don't feel that that age. There's a thread to me that I can say has existed, you know, since I was seven or before. You don't think you're too old ever. I mean, it's different. If you want to be an Olympic gymnast, then you've, you're probably not going to do it at 48. But to be creative, I think I think the main thing is that you have to have space in your head because it's akin to falling in love. And love takes a lot of time, doesn't it? You know, like when you fall in love with someone, you don't see them like a couple of hours a week, do you? You want to see them every day for nine hours a day and then just you want them to kind of you want to inhabit so that's what it was like falling in love so it took I had happened to be 48 before I had the headspace or the kind of space around me to be able to do that but that's just me there are some people you know that I'm not speaking for anybody else other than myself I'm an obsessive person if I had started when I had children it would have been not it wouldn't have been easy for them and it wouldn't have been easy for me. So, you know, it was just the right time. And I don't know if people's, you know, like, it's only through, being, through, through working, through painting, that I've realised that women have a different time to men in the art world. But then women have a different time through every world than men. We still do, you know, and I think, I don't know what I was doing for the first 48 years. You know, it was as if I was asleep because mm -hmm. I never really saw very much of all of that. And through painting, it's as if it woke me up. Mm. 
I think it, what you're saying really resonates with something I was reading recently, where it's kind of about the someone was saying that the problem with um, the way that we view creating work and, and the creating art now is that we view it as something that has to be something you can put on a CV, like a skill, you know, so I think it's, it's quite, um, it's resonating that you go under the moniker unskilled worker as well, that it's kind of this thing of creating isn't actually like that. It's actually, it's something human that we all have within us and we all have the kind of capacity to do. It's really resonating with that, just that it's, it's kind of, perceived as something that you should necessarily develop into a career where it's actually something that we could all benefit from and do at any point in time if, if it should so take our fancy it's a strange phenomenon and it's probably something to do with capitalism but that's 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 my answer well, to it. I think you're right I mean the art world is like capitalism on steroids because it's unregulated and in many ways I don't think it should be regulated because it makes it really fun but everything is turned into a product isn't it even now, you know, when I hear about our, like people have asked me about my brand as an artist. Well, I don't see myself as a brand. You know, I haven't built a brand. I feel other people want to see it as a kind of brand, but it's not, it's not a Coca-Cola or I don't know, you know, so I, I really dislike the word brand. Anyway, it's a horrible, horrible, kind of horrible, just a horrible word from a horrible <laughs> time and a horrible place in history. And, um, you know, yeah, you're right. If you want to create you create, but I think that social media has made it so that if you want to create, it has to really be something, you know, and it doesn't. Yeah. So two things that you have certainly created to the benefit of, of um, art on a postcard, <laughs> there's a oh. segue there, um, is are your two little um, postcard size artworks which are absolutely brilliant. And we're so excited to include them. I was wondering, could you please talk us through these two artworks? One of which I would really urge the listeners to go <laughs> look at a little kind of a bush baby thing with oh, oh fuck written um, on, <laughs> on a kind of jewel. So yeah, could you describe these two artworks for us? Well, you'd sent me the three postcards and I have to admit, first postcard I wanted to make a miniature artwork and you know I worked on it for two days and it just wasn't happening and rolled up in the corner of my studio was a painting that I'd began around 18 months earlier now usually usually if a painting doesn't work in order to put an end to this madness of trying to make it do in that time what I want it to do I just rip it up but I didn't with this one because there were elements that I really loved so I rolled it up and just shoved it in the corner of my studio so I'd been trying to make you a miniature very detailed artwork and then suddenly I thought that painting there are postcards on that painting. And there they were. The face on the bigger artwork. The figure is naked and she's holding um, a kind of cage. And then there's the, an owl that has got, it's a kind of bold mouse kind of thing. And it's caught and it's, it's not good news, you know, it's, it's on its way to be eaten, basically. Um, 
So I cut those two elements out. And I was really happy and then edged them in gold because I felt they were like quite precious, you know, taken out. The painting was really big and the postcards are a really nice little size and they were just perfect for it. So I edged them in gold, like they were these cutouts from this very big thing. The mouse in the owl's claw, because all you can see is the claw, actually did wind its way into another painting. It's in a painting called Walking with the Lavender Wolf. Yeah, so I was just really, really happy with them. Yeah, we are too. I mean, like you said, they're just fantastic. And to hear where they've come from as well, to know that they're sort of like been given this new life into this this postcard. And as you said, the gold, they, they're so special. They're such little jewels in this auction. Um, and yeah, we're, we're truly honoured and, and delighted to have you involved. So thank you so, so much, Helen. Well, thank you for asking me. It was such a lovely thing to do. I really enjoyed it. And it's given those those two elements a really nice place to live. And I hope somebody enjoys them. I'm sure they will. Helen, thank you so much for giving some time as well today to chat with us. It's been oh, so thank interesting. You. And like you said, I know it's not always totally easy or comfortable for artists to talk about their work because sometimes, you know, those you don't know those things. But we are always very interested to hear. So thank you very much. Thank you very much. Thank you. See you soon. Bye-bye. Oh, her practice is just insane. It's so good. I know. <laughs> I yeah. found that so interesting about just having one thing to just like seriously focus on mm -hmm. and get to it. I need think I think I need to practice a bit more of that myself in my own life because I'm definitely like I get into one thing then that kind of leaves a bit and then I get into another thing and then I've got six things on the go and none of them really get cared for. Um, it's classic multitasking of our generation. It's just like, you can't just do one thing. You can't just have one job. You gotta have 30 jobs. Helen's amazing. And I love that when you speak about her work or like one speaks about work, I had this when I interviewed her, there's no, she should always say exactly what, what she thinks in her sort of interpretations of stuff. She'll sort of go, yeah, like I, I love that interpretation, whatever, but she'll go, but for me, it's not like that at all. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, which I think is is really, really nice. And um, it's a real like great insight into, into her work and her practice. And I think it's really interesting. And I love how she was saying how she's quite obsessive and- I know, yeah. I mean, yeah, just so interesting. And I guess as well, knowing where that those little postcards have come from, that they were part of the bigger work and now they've got a new lease of life as, as these uh, kind of tiny postcards. I'm sure whoever is listening is gonna to wanna to snap those up. I know what a jewel. I, I literally thought when, um, when, when she sent them through and Gemma said they'd come, I was like, she did them awfully quickly. And now <laughs> I know, let me say, new lease of life, giving them a new one. Yeah. yeah jewel yeah um and so obviously our listeners can do so via our website www.artonapostcard.com and there will be a little section for this particular she curates auction um thank you ever so much molly for coming back on the podcast another time it's been fabulous as always for ha having you thank you so much and yeah have a good uh, yeah rest of your day and week and yeah we'll meet up soon yeah 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 all right take care molly Bye. Bye. Bye.